we don't want to overrate uh, the influence of philosophy here, but it has had some role in helping Super construct. influential. <laughs> we have a show in Netflix. Left of Philosophy. I'm Lillian. Here with me today is our What's Left of Philosophy crew, Gil, Owen, and Will. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey, all. Hello. Um, our guest today is Dr. Robin Salicates. Robin is the chair of social philosophy at the Free University of Berlin and the co-director of the Center for Humanities and Social Change. So thank you so much for joining us, Robin. We're really looking forward to the conversation. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here and also a bit excited because it's a great uh, podcast that you've created. Thank you so much. Um, so Robin is the author of many articles on critical theory, protest movements, and civil disobedience, a few of which we read to prepare for this episode and that we'll put in the show notes, as well as his first book, um, Critique as Social Practice, which was published some years ago in German and I think 2011, but the English translation is more recent in 2018. Um, and Robin, would you like to talk about, uh, mention any forthcoming projects that you have that you're working on? Well, I'm trying to finish um, a book on uh, civil disobedience, um, which which I call Democratizing Disobedience, and it's been in the making for some time. I, I hope to finish it in the in the coming year or so, but it's been delayed by the pandemic as so much other stuff. And I'm, I have a new project on migration and racism I'm getting started on. Awesome. So it sounds like that's a lot of that is what we'll be talking about today, um, and we're probably some themes that you've been um, putting together for some time. So I think that there's a couple um, different conversations that Robin is involved with, and um, I'll just say one of them, I think, is the conversation about what critical theory is doing in general. In critical theory, we call this like a method question, like what does it mean to be critical, and why is critical theory different from other kinds of political theory, or what Max Horkheimer famously called just traditional theory at one point in time. I think that what's special about Robin's work is that he has a perspective about what it is that critical theory is doing and then doesn't sort of get stuck in uh, rumination about that, but actually tries to um, relate to social movements and um, to different forms of protest and to articulate what they are doing um, in a way that is constructive. So, um, and the reason I think that this is an interesting topic, however far we want to pursue it in our conversation, is that I think there is a worry about the domestication and depoliticization of critical theory, like everything in the academy has become critique, a kind of inflation of the idea of critique. And sort of sadly, I've had people ask me as someone on the left what I even find useful about critical theory today as it sort of assimilated into um, various more mainstream kinds of normative political philosophy, which are not necessarily bad or wrong, but maybe that it lost some of its distinctive character. But there are you know, considerable resources in this tradition, and it seems like in Robin's work is taking this problem head on. And so maybe we could talk about how this is um, working in his research. And um, also, I think 
that maybe if there's one big claim that Robin makes is that the role of the critical theorist is to search for practices of critique and contestation and figure out how to frame them. So he has a way of talking about basically the relationship between the theorist and social movements and the fact that social movements are often issuing critiques and the critical theorist's role is to relate to that in some way and that if it's not doing that, then critical theory becomes less than critical. And um, some of the specific instances of social protest and critique that he's interested in are um, civil disobedience um, in all kinds of contexts, but um, significantly recently, since I think 2015, when there was the so-called migration crisis at the EU's borders, um, he began a process of talking about this as a form of civil, civil disobedience, um, analyzing what we mean by civility and political inclusion. And so maybe we can take the opportunity to talk about some of those themes. So as that's by way of introduction. I'll just turn it over to Robin briefly to say, Maybe if you want to summarize some parts of what you take your agenda and critical theory to be, and if I'm right to say that you're responding to some of that depoliticization of critical theory and trying to revive it in a constructive way, what's your take on it? Yeah, so thanks, Lillian. That was a, that was a great way of introducing the conversation. I mean, what, what, what drew me to critical theory in the first place is this promise that it basically inherited from Marx, you know, other sources as well, but primarily Marx, I guess, that critical theory has a kind of responsibility or task vis-a-vis social reality or practice that is uh, twofold in a way. It's on the one hand, um, it's awareness um, or it's claim rather to being uh, grounded in practice. And more concretely, that means being grounded in uh, social struggles, in forms of oppositional consciousness, uh, in forms of resistance that actually exist and on which the theorists can build in a way um, they don't start their critical enterprise kind of ex nihilo or in a vacuum, but rather they are part of a social reality that is crisscrossed by contradictions, by social struggles, by political movements, and they try to situate themselves in this field of struggle. But also, and um, maybe even more importantly, their theory is not sort of theory for its own sake, but it's aiming at practice. It's emancipatory. It, it pursues an emancipatory interest as it is sometimes called. And and it, it is this kind of dual relation of uh, critical theory to practice that, that I found attractive and promising. But at the same time, I found it very frustrating how especially um, the uh, ambition to ground the theoretical analysis, to ground the critical orientation of critical theory in practice, often gets sidestepped or forgotten in a way. Uh, critical theory has become this kind of almost autonomous enterprise, it's, you know, as you pointed out, it has been integrated into academic discourses. It has become a normal part, as it were, of, uh, of philosophy and of social science, which is good in a way. I mean, it's, you know, it's good that people, you know, hopefully students learn about it in, in their studies today. But on the other hand, it, I think there's a risk, obviously, and you, you've described this risk very well. So I think it's important to you know, re- remember that initial motivation and orientation of critical theory because if it's not, if it doesn't have that distinctive enterprise, then you know why engage uh, with it? Then you can also do all kinds of other interesting, you know, stuff in philosophy and in, in the social sciences. Um, so, so that's one of the important motivating factors behind my work, or what is what is driving me. But at the same time, I also think that uh, there are two problems in a way. I mean, one is the kind of uh, let's say risk of self misunderstanding. 
that I see sometimes happening in critical theory where the, the, the theorist in a way, you know, forgets about this link to practice and just does his or her own thing in a way which, which can be productive, but which then is something else, I think, than uh, what critical theory was initially supposed to be and what I still find promising. And, and the other risk is that critical theory can develop its own, let's say, anti-emancipatory effects. And the, what I found, found most intriguing is that within critical theory, starting from Marx via Rosa Luxemburg and other Marxists to, you know, let's say black feminists, discussions today in, uh, you know, following on Foucault, but also in the work of Charles Mills, etc. There's there's a kind of internal discussion in critical theory about this potential anti-emancipatory effect that critique itself can develop if it doesn't take um, the you know, forms of critical consciousness, the struggles, and the other oppositional practices that do actually exist seriously, if it does proceed from the assumption that somehow, you know, ordinary people don't get it and they need the theorists to come in to liberate them, the kind of platonic uh, image of the critical theorist as descending into the cave of everyday consciousness and bringing the truth to the people. I mean, that's, that's I think, where one of the biggest kind of risks lies next to the kind of normalization of critical theory to succumb to this uh, very traditional image of the philosopher as the one who has seen the truth and now tries to bring it to ordinary people who are somehow blocked from accessing accessing it. So I'm, I'm sort of battling against that image. And I think the best resource to do that is to actually start from the struggles, to start from the oppositional forms of consciousness, to start from the alternative forms of knowledge that have been um, you know, developing in actual practices of resistance on the ground, hence my interest in civil disobedience and other forms of uh, struggle and resistance. And, you know, again, I think that that is what critical theory is about. I mean, it's not no coincidence that one of the most popular characterizations of critical theory is this formula from the early Marx that, you know, Nancy Fraser and many others have returned to that critical theory is the self-clarification of the struggles and wishes of one's age. And that means it always has to continue to, in a way, struggle to be that. I mean, it doesn't happen automatically. It can very easily forget about this link and it has to, you know, be reminded and remind itself to establish that link to make sure that it doesn't become something entirely different. Yeah, I like very much the emphasis on the lack of like an automatic link between any of these sorts of critical discourses, but also in some of the work that you did, that you that we read um, in your sort of thinking about the so-called migrant crisis and to use like Mizadra Nielsen's formulation, right? Thinking like a migrant rather than thinking like a state as revealing what is actually at stake in the nature of these contested spaces and these contested political categories. One of the things that I, I really appreciated is you, you draw quite heavily on standpoint theory um, coming out specifically of the work of Patricia Hill Collins and Du Bois in his own way as well, and emphasizing there too against the kinds of critiques that are made of standpoint theory sometimes. And one of the sort of critiques that regularly gets leveled against standpoint theory is that there's this sort of presumption that various positions will automatically have critical insight into this or that political or social reality or problem. Whereas, as I think you rightly point out, and this is true in other standpoint thinkers like um, Hartsock as well, right? Like the standpoint is something that needs to be won. It's the result of very specific and careful critical work, and it's not automatic. And so this seems like an interesting kind of thread or through line between a number of the different sorts of themes in your work, emphasizing the non-automatic 
character of something like a radical or critical orientation, whether that is on the part of oppressed or dominated peoples or the so-called critical theorist, right? This is something that we can't take for granted if we're going to actually maintain something like a critical orientation. So I just think that's very interesting. I don't know if you wanted to speak to that. Yeah, no, that's a that's a, that's a great observation, and I I haven't necessarily made the link myself, but it it's, it sounds like a good way to, you know, to to establish a connection there. I mean, I've, maybe maybe one point I want I want to mention is that I, I found it especially with um, kind of critical theory now in the more narrow sense of the Frankfurt School uh, tradition also somewhat frustrating that it has been, you know, characterized you know not the whole tradition obviously, <laughs> but you know much of it by a kind of very parochial uh, orientation where um, on the one hand you have something like um, the framework of methodological nationalism still orienting much of the debate where you know critical theorists seem to talk about issues primarily within societies that are imagined as if they are somehow you know containers where um, migration doesn't really come up as an issue borders don't really come up as an issue you know insofar as you know if you look at Honneth's work for example that's one of the big problems, I think, of his of his work, that it reconstructs normative orders of uh, societies as if they are somehow, you know, relatively homogeneous and clearly bordered entities. Um, and the other thing that is also a matter of parochialism is, I think, the almost complete ignorance of other critical traditions, including the ones that you've um, mentioned, black feminist writers and from theoretical approaches in, in other traditions of, uh, of feminism, anti-colonial uh, theorizing, uh, sort of critical race theory in the broad in the broad sense. It's 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 I think only now that especially you know younger people who work in critical theory start making these connections. Um, and I think it's you know it's high time to do that. And there's there's a lot I think one can one can learn from putting these uh, traditions into conversation. Well, maybe one good avenue into looking at the way that you approach critical theory is to take what you've done with the concept of civility, right? Because I think one of the things I really appreciate about the way that you approach that concept is, you know, there's one very academic way of doing this type of thing that we're probably all familiar with, which is, okay, civility. Let's go back to the Romans and the concept of the civitas and let's unpack, do a bunch of etymologies of, you know, the way the word right, developed through Cic- Yeah, all exactly. Right. Through Cic- <laughs> I'm not going to name names. I'm not naming names. You know. um, you know, Will this- is going to name names. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the way the concept has evolved and developed and that work, you know, it's certainly, I'm not disparaging outwork as such, right? It can have a place. But I, one of the things things I really appreciate about the way you approach it is that you look at, for example, in 1996, this event that happened in uh, in Paris, where the sans-papier was kind of birthed as a social movement, and the way that citizenship and the concept of the citizen and the concept of the civil was redefined by a certain set of practices, a certain set of emancipatory practices, and then allow that not as a kind of example that you go out searching for once you've made the concept, right, but as a, a site as a, as, a, as, a, as a rich site in which to develop that concept in conversation with its philosophical lineage. So I was wondering if you could just say something about that relationship between those two sources of yeah. concepts in your approach to critical theory. Yes, yeah, so, so I think that's actually an excellent example to see how a certain theoretical possibility of reclaiming, radicalizing, rethinking a certain concept opens up not in the space of theoretical discussion, but in a way, um, you know, w- within activism within social and political struggles and movements that practically reinvent a certain category mm-hmm. that, um, you know, in in the way in which they unfold as a movement, um, produce knowledge in a way, produce concepts and, and to a certain extent also theory 
that then I think critical theory in the non-Monero sense again uh, can 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 sort of learn from. And that's a, that's a thought I think that is still very provocative to many critical theorists because they think of theory as something that can only be produced by theorists in the in the more narrow sense. And maybe what these people out there have, you know, they have narratives, they have um, stories, you know, good ones, and you know, narratives that might disrupt our, you know, uh, ideological um, ways of looking at the world, etc. But come on, they don't have theory. That they, they don't even have full-blown <laughs> knowledge, probably in the in the in the critical it's sense, true. and that's that's something I think which blocks critical theorists from actually learning, um, you know, learning something from uh, the agent, agents on the ground and from social and political um, movements. And I, th- I think um, you know that's that is I think true for it's true for the labor movement, it's true for anti-racist and anti-colonial movements, where a lot of the theorizing obviously was produced not by academics but by organic intellectuals who are you know, excluded from academic knowledge production is true for feminism, uh, etc. And as, as I think that's an obvious point to make in a way, but one that philosophers haven't really been very good at recognizing. And I think what we, we can also see in these in these struggles and movements is that we shouldn't give up certain categories too easily because we think that they have been completely absorbed into a kind of depoliticizing framework claimed by the by the right. I mean, it's a very difficult argument to make because, especially with regard to civility and notions such as citizenship, there's a very strong case, obviously, that these are kind of hegemonic ideological terms that primarily serve to, you know, exclude and pacify and, you know, normalize uh, dissent, etc., to stabilize the existing order and so on. But I think it's it would still be a mistake to give up these terms, and you know, pr- primarily because they are. Uh, used by social movements, they are contested. And if we as theorists don't participate in this contestation, you know, we just give them away. And I think that would be that would be a shame. You know, same holds for for a lot of other terms like democracy or even communism. You know, I mean, you you can't say, well, you know, that has been these terms have been contaminated so much historically that we can't use them anymore. But you know, then I think you you miss the opportunity to make both a conceptual and a political case for why a certain term might still actually be very worth um, sticking to, you know, reconstructing and using in a you know, more radical and grounded, grounded sense. And I think that's also why I think the category of civil disobedience is one that, you know, I, I wouldn't want to give up, although it has been, especially in its kind of liberal mainstream understanding, made into a category that is both extremely, you know, moderate but also completely disconnected from the actual reality of protest. So I think by turning to to actual protest practices, we can rediscover a much you know richer, more complex, and also more radical sense in which these terms can be made to operate. And I think the the more recent discussion about civil disobedience, which has taken a much more radical, non-liberal turn, turn, and in which people have also discovered, rediscovered in a way. The complex history of you know civil disobedience movements from the civil rights movement in its more complex radical instantiations um, to Gandhi and others um, that this this has really shown I think how how much possibilities there are beyond Rawls and Habermas to think about these issues. Yeah, I I was really excited about the work that you were doing, and um, I, I want the phrase when I, I hear what you're doing in in this way. So over the four papers that that we read, I also saw a form of um I would call a paradigmatic critique going on. So there's a sort of meta critique of so what is even the framework you are using to understand the phenomena you're looking at. This came through in your um, article on Whiggish history, which you kind of um, you were looking at philosophers such 
such as Elizabeth Anderson, and you know she starts making this argument as if something like you know the abolition of slavery was due to you know uh, the reconstruction of a, a learning process, a sort of irenic understanding of history, us naturally getting better. And you stop and say, well, let, let's actually try to understand why something like slavery came about. And it's rarely because the powerful were persuaded by a moral argument that there are structural reasons. There's the activity of those who are dispossessed. And so what you're doing, even with something like civil disobedience that I saw, is that you know there can be a way in which I think some philosophers don't see that the paradigm they've assumed is that there are these concepts floating out there. And once we've defined them, we find we try to place them in reality. Rather than something like you know, um, civicness, rather than something like disobedience, is a concept that lives as contextured by its practices, its contestations, that concepts take different form because they aren't just living in the realm of ideas, but they are practiced, they are constituted, and this seems to me why you're doing that distinction between constituted power and constituent power. And so it doesn't make sense to give up on terms as if they are already contaminated unless you operate from a, pan, a paradigm that you know, words exist in you know, a sort of space where once they are lost, they're lost forever, rather than if these are political concepts, then they must be taking place in a, a field of political forces, a field of political contestation. And so critical theory shouldn't you know, always be aware of, so what paradigm am I using to analyze these phenomena, and am I actually freezing? them in place? And am I actually just assuming things a priori rather than actually paying attention to, so what? in what way is this being used? And that's why something I try to say to my students sometimes when they read figures like Frederick Douglass or MLK, and like, well, why do they you know, insist on being American or something? Well, that can only seem like a backwards thing if you assume that being an American is frozen in this realm of ideas and they're capitulating to it rather than trying to put it on their own terms struggling over this is what it will mean from here on out. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great way of putting it. And I mean, I think it shows that philosophy can, you know, a certain way of thinking about philosophy, an ideal theoretical way of thinking maybe about the task of political and social philosophy, it can itself be an epistemological obstacle. It can stand in the way of, you know, properly grasping what is going on. And I mean, what, what I found almost, you know, the, the most ironic in a way, um, um, example of this is Rawls' discussion of civil disobedience. I mean, it's it's the one part of the theory of justice that is supposed to be non-ideal, and yet it's so <laughs> ideal that it has nothing to do with the kind of phenomena that he <laughs> wants to grasp. And in the end, he comes up with a concept of civil disobedience that has no empirical instantiation. That's a very mm. bad outcome mm. for a non-ideal. You know, for an example, for, <laughs> That's for, really for how non-ideal yeah. theory is supposed to work. So, so you know, you have to ask, well, what what went wrong there? I mean, you know, it, mm. it wasn't a problem of his intentions. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, people have shown that he really did want to, you know, somehow give, you know, some legitimacy to the civil rights movement, etc. But still, he ends up constructing this model, which in the end does not only help us, and it doesn't only not help us to understand reality or to somehow, you know, support a movement for justice, but it actually blocks us from properly understanding it. It can actually be used to delegitimize such movements for being too radical, for not following um, you know, all the conceptual and normative requirements that people associate with the notion of civil disobedience. It happens still today, you know, like Black Lives Matter or um, you know, climate justice movements, they get confronted with an idealized image of Martin Luther King and they're being told you know, why are you so radical? Why do you destroy stuff? Why do you block the intersection? Martin Luther King didn't do that, right? 
and uh, and so th- there's this whole ideology floating around, which you know I think philosophy. I mean, we don't we don't, we don't want to overrate uh, the influence of philosophy here, but it has had some role Super in construct. <laughs> you know, we have a show on Netflix. Yeah, <laughs> didn't. I mean, it did. It did. It, it didn't do much to kind of destabilize these ideological or hegemonic uh, notions, and it it can do much more. It has it has done much more in many cases, right? So I don't. I mean, so there there are philosophical resources, as Lillian pointed out at the beginning, that are there that have been used in very powerful and critical ways, and that we should continue to use in these powerful and critical ways, but mainstream philosophy hasn't been doing that and still isn't uh, doing it. So I think there's a lot of work to do in this direction. Can I say, I, okay, I love this way of framing the problem. I think that it's right to say that there's a way in which it can covertly delegitimize um, movement demands or ways of protesting that don't fit these models and become uncritical. I actually think, I don't know if this will make sense to you all, but I think there's another way it happens too, where the theorist becomes like too radical for the movement. So here's the example. There's this whole anti-humanist wave that goes on um, in the 80s and 90s. And theoretically, internally, there are merits to anti-humanism. But then I look back on, speaking of the civil rights movement, I look back on the Memphis sanitation strike there are these powerful image, images of these men going on strike, black men in Memphis, and they have these big signs on them that say, I am a man. And they're some of the most moving images of the civil rights movement. Like they can almost like bring you to tears. And it's to the end of the movement when, you know, it takes more of like a, I, I, guess, the, I guess the end of the movement is signified by the end of Martin Luther King's life because then he's murdered when he goes to support those strikers afterward. And then we have this whole discourse about anti-humanism. And there's this, there's this thing that like, that internally it makes sense. And then I'm like, but how does that reflect that, that imagery and, and those demands? Likewise for like, sometimes I even think liberal rights or democracy or, you know, basic things that when they're eroded somehow, you know, like the demands for them aren't sufficient or, or we have like these radical critiques of these rights now because we know they're in principle not sufficient. And bourgeois. then when these bourgeois, but I mean, I think that that's a, a Marxian variant of it, but I actually think Marxists are the least guilty of this because mm. they tended to support bourgeois mm. rights, at least in the short term. I actually think like this is a way in which the kind of like more high, like high theory spinoffs of that kind of critique later started developing in like continental philosophy in which like these concepts themselves just become the things you need to throw away. Um, concepts, rights, security, Yeah, because they're doing so, ontological violence or something, right? Yeah, yeah. they're doing, un- like, you know, they're, they're internally <laughs> unstable. They're always going to be exclusive in some way. And therefore, like, we know that they're not sufficient. So we're going to get rid of these concepts. Mm-hmm. And then I always felt like this was like a pretty awkward pairing with like some of the common demands that were, you know, go on, which are for citizenship, inclusion, and so on. I mean, maybe uh, two or three things about that. I mean, you know, obviously it, de- it depends on the on the exact example. Let's say how this mm-hmm. um, plays out. But I think so. First, I would always ask, well, you know, why would we call some of these what you call high theory uh, developments more radical or too radical? I mean, maybe they're just not very radical. Maybe that's just you know they're doing something else and they're not radical in the required mm-hmm. sense. I don't know. They don't do um, the kind of work that we would want radical theory to do in terms of, you know, contributing to radical social transformation or to emancipatory change. And the second thing relates more to your 
example. So I think obviously there there can be cases where there is really like a total disconnect here, but I think it's important to also see that um, the so when uh, these social movements or when these protesters made these claims to be recognized as human, or when Fanon makes this claim, for example, you know in some ways he's also a humanist. I don't think they're ne- they're necessarily best construed as saying we want to be the same kind of human that you guys who are dominating us <laughs> right, already right, are. Right. It's it's a quest or a struggle for another way of being human that has not yet been realized, that these people who oppress us are not instantiating. So you, you, you could imagine a scenario where, you know, some posthumanists maybe who reject, you know, that established hegemonic form of being human and these protesters might actually agree, you know, not in the sense of we want to become crazy cyborgs or something like that, but rather the form of humanity that um, we are rejecting and the form of humanity that we are struggling for are radically different. And uh, I think the same goes at least for the emancipatory movements that you know I, I'd be interested in that are more radical. That's, the same goes for notions such as uh, citizenship or uh, democracy or inclusion, etc. I mean, you know, even if you think of you know, let's say, struggles about. Um, LGBTQI uh, struggles, for example. There's obviously a big internal debate there between, um, you know, for example, do you just want marriage as it exists and you know, you just want um, non-heterosexual couples to be able to marry according to the same rules as well? Or is the agenda more radical? Is the agenda for a completely different way of organizing social relations and you know, distributing rights among, for example, couples um, that stops with the way in which you know, the bourgeois state has enshrined the certain certain privileges for bourgeois uh, heterosexual marriages. Or do migrant movements, for example, do they just say, well, we also want in, and then we are happy to ex- exclude all the others that have not yet made it. We also want the kind of exclusive citizenship that um, people in the global north are uh, profiting from. Or is their claim for citizenship more transformative or more radical, more along the lines of kind of reconstituting of constitutive power rather than just, you know, moving within the confines of what has already been constituted, what is already the existing uh, regime. So, um, yeah, so I think that's the that's the way in which I would sort of push the question. And then I think, you know, still, obviously, there are cases where there's a disconnect. And that is necessary because, you know, that's another quote that I really like from Horkheimer, where he talks about the dynamic unity between theory and practice. There's no automatism there. There's also no harmony, and there shouldn't be. I mean, that would be bad. If there was harmony, then you wouldn't have the dynamism, right? So you need for the transformative power to um, to be preserved. You need that conflictual, partly asymmetrical, it shifts, um, et cetera, conflictual uh, dynamic unity that that Horkheimer is talking about in terms of how theory re- relates to social struggles. That's really helpful, and also, I mean, I always had trouble understanding like what the sort of turn towards this kind of like Lillian was mentioning this theoretical anti-humanism only made any sense to me if it was carried out in the name of like a fidelity to a higher or new humanist praxis. Mm-hmm. And when it's not, when it gets disarticulated from that and becomes this sort of theoretical commitment for itself, for its own sake disarticulated from struggles and the, the, the actual demands for people with oppositional consciousness with transformative and radical aspirations it's not clear what the theory is for at that point it, and the tricky thing is you were just saying robin right is that at the same time if there was this kind of just immediate identity or harmony between theory and practice then 
it would also not be necessary. It would also not have anything to add or to contribute. So it's it's a difficult sort of like always necessary question to to ask again. What is the sort of specific co concrete um, relationship between these two kinds of ways of thinking about acting and living otherwise um, in in each moment in each case? Yeah, um, where that disparity is a condition for the possibility of theory or philosophy having anything to say at all. But if that gap grows too wide, it also can't speak to anything any longer. It's very, very tricky. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's also, sorry, just one thought. I mean, it's also extremely important for the, for the theorists to be aware of that and to, because that's where the, the kind of anti-emancipatory effect I've been talking about, you know, mostly kick in. I, one episode from you know many many years ago um, from one of the first of May you know, in Berlin there's always a huge uh, you know demonstrations and riots and so on on the first of May and one episode I will never forget from many many years ago when I was a young student participating more actively in these things was you know there were a bunch of sort of migrant kids with Turkish um, and so on backgrounds and they were like doing some kind of hip hop thing at the demonstration and they were rapping you know we want these German passports blah 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 and then there were these you know German leftist you know critical guys who were standing there and tried to tell them that the German passport is shit, they shouldn't want it, it's reactionary, we should abolish <laughs> Germany. And, you know, these kids were like, you know, what the fuck? I mean, give us these passports. Cool, we want bro. The right <laughs> abolish Germany and, after you give me these passports. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. you know, like, first things first. And, I mean, that's the argument that Marx yeah. makes in the Jewish question, right? I mean, equal rights for everyone. And then we can struggle for the other more radical form of emancipation. But you can sort of tell those who are you know less privileged than you for those who are excluded from certain uh, rights that these rights are shit that they shouldn't struggle for them mm -hmm. um that's mm -hmm. a reactionary move and i see too many critical mm -hmm. theorists uh, still doing that same move and you know not being aware of the way in which um this has anti-emancipatory effects let alone that it alienates the oppressed from whatever project uh, these critical theorists think they are engaged in yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm going to say something that I don't know how it's going to rub people, but from what you're saying, I actually am finding myself increasingly distrustful of any theorist who tries to claim that their theory is radical. I think by that, I'm trying to you know, understand, like, you know, what will be radical in this particular context is going to shift. And that, you know, if you're doing critical theory, I, I know, and I'm, I'm like outing myself here. I love this line in your, your, one of your migrant essays where you're talking about, so these migrant movements, you know, they can allow us to see, I believe the, the quotation is, you know, these temporary ut utopian possibilities in the here and now. And I think it's really important, mm -hmm. the temporary, that, you know, critical mm -hmm. theory can intervene by showing, you know, what is not yet possible, but in here's, in these practices, in these concepts, et cetera. And so you let go of any claim to radicality because as things move on as they shift yeah you will probably find that the thing that you have written has also been left behind but there's as if there's this desire in the theorists you know on, on some theorists part to want to leap over their own shadow to never have mm. been caught out to never have been caught up in these shifting mechanisms and at that point i want to say well what is it that you want what type of knowledge is it that you're hoping your theory is going to produce and so i wonder if there's also 
you know, and this is maybe striking with the way critical theory is often read, there's a type of humility that goes on with this dynamic unity between theory and practice. If it's always going to be conflictual, it's never going to be harmonious, then give up the dream that your theory is going to be coinciding absolutely with the social practices that are happening. That what you're trying to trace out is, you know, um, a sketch of what this concept could do given these social practices in these structural constraints. And that's a, that's a type of knowledge about foresight rather than the knowledge that we might think of as, so one plus one equals two, and now we can apply it. Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely does speak to my understanding of critical theory and my, also to my uneasiness with some, with some of the, you know, maybe more ambitious or strong programs in critical theory. So, I, you know, in, in, in the book that Lillian has mentioned, I, I make quite a lot of the, the more modest um, version that Freud gives of psychoanalysis, where he basically says, you know, my job as an analyst is not to t- tell you how to live or not to, you know, sort of sketch the path into the, you know, into, into your future individually or collectively. My, my job is to somehow help facilitate asking the right kind of question and to give you tools to actually ask these questions and to move mm. along and to sort of individually and collectively try to answer them. And in that process of answering the question, the critical theorist has no special role in a way, right? It's, I, so I, I, I really like to think of critical theory as having primarily this kind of facilitating role. I mean, it, it sounds a bit maybe too... Uh, modest for you know all the kind of theory um, that critical theory has uh, produced, but I think that's a very fundamental part of this relation uh, to to practice, and I think it can help addressing this risk of producing these anti-emancipatory effects of subjugating practice to theory in a way, and also of um, ending up with this kind of invocation of radicality instead of doing the actual uh, work because just just like a standpoint in practice is the result of you know really hard political and theoretical and you know cognitive work, I think the same goes for for the work of the critical theorists. It has to be hard. I mean, you have to you know engage with a lot of empirical research. You cannot just postulate these things. You have to you know do or at least read uh, or at least talk to people who do sociology and history and anthropology, and you have to go. Um, you know, to interact with movements and uh, try to uh, sort of learn something from them before you, in a way, come out with your theoretical observations. And and you know that's difficult to do if you're an academic. And that's so it's 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 not as if you know somehow there's a blueprint for how to do that. It's not as if this is easy. Yeah, I, I guess what I want to say is that you know I think there's definitely a role a role for critical theory to play. Otherwise, you know, I wouldn't be interested in this uh, tradition. But um, it can only play this role, I think, if uh, it has a proper understanding of this role in relation to the practices um, that it's supposed to link to. And it, it, it doesn't see itself as replacing these practices and, and the work that the agents themselves have to do. Again, that's a point that, you know, that Marx has already made. I mean, Marx, of course, makes many points and sometimes they uh, contradict each other. But I think it's a very important you know, aspect that uh, for him... Self-emancipation is a fundamental feature of the struggle, and he, you know, opposes anyone who thinks that the workers are too uneducated to emancipate themselves or too dumb to do so, and that they need to be freed from above in a way, right? And I think that's the, the that's the temptation that critical theory has to permanently struggle against. Yeah, I have a question about this relationship to to social movements because I completely agree with this way of framing it, but one of my worries about how the how as a theorist you approach mm-hmm. social movements is that there's something about them that resists 
a certain kind of academic knowledge production, which might be more neutral or maybe neutrality is not the right word, but kind of disinvolved. And so I'm wondering, I've, I've tried to think about it, and I don't think I have any sufficient answers, but I've tried to think about the relationship between a kind of partisan partisan and involved way of understanding social movements so that they don't, they're not like an empirical datum in the same way that maybe other objects of study are, right? And that there's a sense in which I think they can only be understood from within certain commitments that might be shared, right? And so I wonder, just almost methodologically, uh, as a methodological question, what role does a kind of partisan commitment to the ends that are pursued, you know, by social movements into those projects, to what extent is that a necessary epistemological element of understanding them, you know? Yeah, I think that's one of the one of the biggest challenges after that confidence in a way has 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 vanished that there is one movement that critical theory has to, you know, be linked to because it's the labor movement and that's the mm -hmm. primary agent of social change. So if if that's no longer the case, or at least if that's not unproblematically the case, then I think there's that's a big challenge for uh, for critical theory, and I think it's it's a challenge for which there's I don't think there's a there's a kind of general answer. I mean, my my sense is that there's in a way two answers that are unsatisfactory. Um, one is to say, well, in a, in a way that problem doesn't pose itself for me because I already know I, I'm already affiliated with a movement, and that's just the movement I'm part of, and that's mm -hmm. just the movement I'll attach my critical theory to, you know, I, I mean, that, that can work out very well. And I, we talked earlier about organic intellectuals where uh, this is clearly the case and, you know, it's, it, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think it's not a general model. Uh, but neither is it the general model to think that you can somehow deduce the right movement from the theory or somehow say, you know, given these uh, theoretical uh, premises, the, the right kind of movement has, has to look like this or that. And that's the movement that fits this this categorization or these criteria. So I think it has to be a more heuristic or, you know, if you wish, dialectical process in which you try to learn from social movements. And in a certain sense, I'm a pluralist there. I don't think that there's, you know, the need to, uh, you know, focus on one uh, struggle or one, one movement. I think it's important, especially in the current constellation, that there is a kind of convergence, at least as I see it, between uh, several of, you know, the, the more interesting or challenging movements of our times. I mean, uh, there's, I think, a shared uh, sense that to really address the kind of crises and uh, contradictions of our social and political reality, these movements do need to form more than temporary alliances, that they have to integrate their analyses, that you can't uh, understand climate catastrophe, that you can't understand racism, that you can't understand the crisis of capitalism or the crisis of democracy, independent from the other ones, and that therefore even if some movements focus on one rather than the other, they have to be in some kind of conversation with the other movements. Mm -hmm. They have to somehow try to come up with an integrated theoretical analysis and political aim uh, that these don't exist yet. And I don't think that you can very easily produce them, but I think the most interesting stuff in politics and in theory production today happens where this convergence is manifesting itself and you know where people try to figure out how this convergence can be can be thought. So yeah, I guess that re requires some kind of partisan commitment, but I think it's just the old commitment of, uh, you know, what we called emancipatory orientation at the beginning to somehow, you know, try to make the theory or the theoretical work you do useful to the kind of general project of 
you know, emancipatory social change. And that project is not monopolized by this or that movement. I think it's one to which you know different movements try to mm-hmm. contribute. And I think that's that's in a way where the work then would have to be situated. If I could use this as an opportunity to get you to speak a little more concretely about some of the specific work that we looked at, um, because there's this, like you say, monopolizing tendency in certain sort of movements politically, but then also theoretically there's these like universalizing gestures that I think are antithetical to this kind of critical political Mm. work. Um, And one of the ways that this came up in one of your pieces on the migrants issue is the sorts of claims that you get, again, by certain theorists who want to claim the mantle of being critical theorists, of being ra- doing radical critical theory, saying things like that, we are all migrants now, or that, um, you know, we are, you know, we are all becoming migrants, or that, like, you know, the migrant is this kind of universal figure of bare life under the current conjuncture, or what have you. Oh. And I thought that there was, you know, but Felt I just like... like another call out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, who are we talking about here, right? But, the, like, there's, but there's something truly, like, myopic about this. Theoretically, this is a bankrupt move. It's not the case. And so like, there's something about figuring out how to articulate in the way that Owen was describing a kind of partisan affiliation without immediate like, direct identification or like, universalizing the figure under consideration. So if I guess like, if I'm right about that, maybe I'd like to ask you to like, spell out a little bit what it is that you think that the specific, uh, what specifically is revealed by this perspective of like, the migrant in the case of the EU in the past couple of years. Like, what is it that this you know, reveals or shows or calls into question that you find so kind of interesting. And I'll also add, Robin, if you want to give a little bit um, of just the theoretical context for some, I mean, I think most of our listeners will have understood that there's a so-called migration crisis, but if you have any, you know, just framing debates, you know, how people are thinking about this that you think would be useful, that would be cool too. Yeah, sure. No, these these are great questions, very big ones as well. So I'll try to speak to some of the aspects that you mentioned. I mean, first, I think one thing, this example of the migration, so-called migration crisis um, shows is that it's always uh, a good idea and actually sort of crucial uh, to ask, well, you know, what kind of crisis are we, are we talking about? Um, Whose, whose crisis is it? What uh, form does the crisis take? What is the normality that this crisis is taken to disrupt and has that normality been the same for everyone? And therefore, is this crisis now suddenly hitting everyone in a kind of similar way? Or has what we experience, what some people experience as normality, actually been a crisis for you know a lot of other people? And that's precisely what I think, um, if you look more closely at the so-called migration crisis, um, one can see very quickly that uh, the so-called normality that apparently was disrupted by that sort of large influx of refugees in 2015 was, you know, an extended crisis for most people outside of Europe because uh, over the last decades, the EU, who still thinks of itself as, um, you know, a haven of uh, social justice, human rights, and even asylum, it has done everything uh, to make access to uh, asylum, to make uh, safe passage across its borders impossible. So, you know, basically it's no accident that the humanitarian catastrophe happening at the EU border, not only at the EU borders, also at the, you know, US-Mexican border and at many other border regimes um, that that protect, um, you know, relatively privileged spaces across the world. Um, It's no accident that these produce humanitarian catastrophes uh, and, you know, large-scale suffering that 
would be uh, you know largely preventable. So I think the first thing is to note that that normality is a, is a fiction and that uh, the crisis was not what people think it was. Namely, suddenly all these people appear and, you know, how are we going to deal with that? From nowhere, right. <laughs> yeah, out of, as if out of nowhere, as if, you know, Europe or uh, the global north had nothing to do with that. <laughs> you know, decades of uh, military intervention, uh, economic destruction and, uh, you know, political meddling um, and, mm-hmm. and so on, uh, as if they had nothing to do with that, as if, uh, you know, long histories of colonial and imperial uh, exploitation and oppression had nothing to do with that. As if, you know, somehow in the UK, uh, the fact that most migration happens along the routes of former colonial exploitation and domination is, you know, for someone like David Miller, just not on the table. You know, he's just, he has these imaginary, you know, examples like, you know, imagine you sit in your house and someone knocks at your door and then are you going to let them in or not? You know, as if this has anything to do with the question that you're facing. (laughs) It's, wow. it's, you know, you have to, like, you know, what are these people... I mean, if I you know, stole their house, you know, what, I should, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like, sometimes you really, you have to ask yourself, you know, what has to happen for someone to come up with these, you know, with these philosophical views on <laughs> on a topic where even you know, minimal attention to anything that's happening in the real world would right. prevent you from saying such such things. Um, so, you know, that's part of, the, part, of, part of the stuff I'm interested in there. And I think more generally, what we can uh, learn from looking at migration as as an actually existing social practice, not as a kind of social scientific construct, you know, um, push and pull factors, all these graphs that you get if you Google Google migration uh, research online, etc. But if you look at it as an actual social practice, what you can learn about the border regime, what you can learn about the border as a very complex social institution is quite incompatible with how most people today still think about the border. So there's a concrete kind of political problem that, you know, for example, in Europe, and I guess also in the US, we have a completely idealized picture of how the border regime Mm -hmm. works. But also there's a broader problem with how people think about borders and how they think about migration, that they still think the border is literally this line somewhere where you can build a wall and then you can regulate entry. And they see it as a deficiency of the border that people get through. And you know, if you look at the economics of migration, for example, it's completely obvious that in the U.S., but also in Europe, if you would actually close the border, if such a thing was possible, it's not possible. But if it was possible, it would be catastrophic. It would be catastrophic right. economically speaking. You know, mm-hmm. agriculture, care sector, building, um, the building sector, all of these would immediately, in Europe, that's for sure the case, um, they would immediately uh, collapse if um, mm-hmm. there was no influx of irregular migrant work. So there are all these complexities that the talk about this crisis of migration in 2015 um, or the kind of vision of how borders work, um, all these complexities that these blend out or block out, I think, that we have to pay attention to. And then, you know, the whole issue of how to think about the ethics and politics of migration um, will, I think, look very differently. And, and you know, I, I, I think migration movements are some of the most interesting movements today precisely because they challenge a very powerful ideology and they, I think, also challenge a very anti-democratic understanding of what democracy is, uh, one that somehow thinks that the boundaries of the demos are, you know, fixable, that they can be kind of rooted in kind of pre-political presumed facts about our identity or our culture or our ancestry, where these are all you know, very pernicious ideologies, I think, and um, and what I mm-hmm. think makes makes the knowledge articulated in migrant movement so interesting is that this knowledge exposes these ideologies as um, the ideologies they are. 
you know, and also listening to you, I'm thinking about how, you know, the border is a site of almost, you know, um, the practice of concepts. You know, it's where you really instantiate, you know, often through very violent and dehumanizing means, who is a citizen, who is a non-citizen, what does it mean? Like, these are abstractions. Like, you know, I, I get kind of uh -huh. heated about this because these are abstractions. They are uh, deeply held beliefs, by, I'm sure, by some people, but these aren't something that are real and walking around in the world. And so it's something that it seems comes from the migrant crisis is, you know, it's also this problem. There's this misdiagnosis of the crisis, as you were talking about, like, you know, these people didn't just, you know, show up because they just felt like going on vacation. There are ways of tracing why this happened. But also it shows us that the practical concepts that we are using in order to envision what's possible, what's impossible, need to be radically rethought. So if you think that what's possible is going to be something, how do we keep the same types of nation states, same mode of production, same privileges, all of that is the same, but we, we fix that problem of ecological crises or people coming here, and then you might start saying things like, well, some people just aren't going to make it. Some people just can't come across the borders. Like, you know, that's just not feasible. And that can be something that is not coming from a place necessarily bigotry, but if you are operating from this idea, these idealized concepts of the world must look like mm. this in the future, and so what do we do now that we have that unquestionable premise? Well, some of these things like critical theory can do is like th those practical concepts are already being put under pressure. Hmm. Those practical yeah, concepts, what yeah. you think citizenship is and national belonging are, they are being put into crisis. The problem is, do you know that? And are you understanding yeah. that? Yeah, and I think this is happening on several levels. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's happening uh, in terms of the immigration debt. I mean, it happens on several levels. So on the one hand, you know, Europe, and I guess the same is true for the U.S., it's hosting a tiny, tiny fraction of the world's refugee population. It's incomparable. You know, the numbers of refugees in Turkey, it's incomparable with what is happening in a much, much wealthier country than like Germany, let alone Pakistan, talking about Pakistan, etc. So that's, a, that's another thing to bring to people's attention. You know, what we're sort of experiencing as a crisis is on a completely different scale from the crisis that these much, much less prepared countries are, have been facing for a long time. The second thing is that, uh, you know, if you already think that this is the crisis or the catastrophe and that we just can't deal with this, what do you think is coming? I mean, what do you think mm -hmm. climate catastrophe will, will bring in the, in, the, in the next couple of years already, right? Um, you know, not even thinking about the crisis, economic crisis, the political crisis that ravaged many of these, of these countries. And third, and maybe that's what you that, that speaks to the last point you mentioned, um, I mean, that's less of a problem, I guess, in the U.S. because it has been more part of um, the social self-understanding here. But in, in Europe, there's still um, the self-image of, you know, for example, German society as being a society of Germans in the old, white, homogeneous sense. But that's not the society we're living in anymore. You know, that's, mm -hmm. still, that's still the government, that's still most of the mainstream media. But that's not our students. That, that's not the high school population in Berlin. You know, these are people who often speak already three languages who have three or four citizenships who, who live in a completely different social reality. So this idea of the homogeneous demos or of the integrated political community or of an easy form of belonging has already been for quite some time. Mm. An ideology that has, has lost touch with reality in a way, right? And I think that's that explains partly, at least, the craziness and the violence of the backlash. That explains why, you know, these people storm the capital, why they run, you know, go crazy in Germany about uh, vaccinations, alien control, 
and you know what they call the great replacement because in a way i think they already realized that they already lost right i mean it's there's no way to turn back um these kinds of social developments that have shaped our societies they are already the nightmare that these people think they can somehow still mm-hmm. fight against and that gives me some hope in a way right i mean like if you're that's right stance, we're coming for you white people we're coming yeah. for you it's over <laughs> I, I just want to be clear i didn't say that so we're already there so you know it's already too late so i mean i just think it's sort of an incredible set of ideas i mean i think that like I don't know, the, the more, I, I'm living in Germany now and I'm, I'm reading about unification and so on and that there's this way in which I, you, know, you say we don't live in that world anymore. I, I actually am just not sure anyone ever did, which is kind of like, oh. I understand what, what you mean by that. I, but, you know, German unification happened in like 1880. Like, you know, that's a pretty recent nation state to be living in. Likewise with Italy. Like those people don't even speak all the same Italian. You know, this is wild. So like... There, there's something like really um, actually tenuous about about borders, you know, in a way that um, sure. which is really outmatched by the tenacity of of the ideology. And then I just, you know, to kind of have a, a hopeful note, I, I felt quite moved by, you know, the attempts of people in various countries to kind of go to the border and to try to welcome people, people in xenophobia is very strong. But, you know, I think clearly that the call, the the way that people made themselves present and made those ideas contradictory mm. to people, um, I think it had some, you know, practical effect in part. Maybe this is, I tend to have an optimism of the intellect, is that part of it is that people kind of realize they're, they're losing, that these ideas don't match reality anymore, and the polities are, are changing. And I actually think that that's kind of an interesting connection with with your work, that to reframe, you know, civil disobedience at the border in terms of challenging what we understand to be um, the polity that we're even talking about, and that this can actually be quite effective in ways that evolve, hopefully in a productive direction. Yeah, if I could just say real quick from what you said, it, it almost sounds as if at least the type of critical theory you're doing, Robin, is there isn't actually room for a methodological pessimism. That, you know, if it is a theory that's trying to explore, you know, um, not yet or emerging instantiations of possibilities, that it can't afford to already foreclose the field of contestation, to already, you know, open and shut, the the case is closed. And I think you can sometimes get a very sort of pessimistic critical theory that's about detailing all the the ways that possibility has been foreclosed, that, you know, the the realm of culture has, you know, become utterly decadent, that, you know, there is no more politics to be had. And what you're describing as critical theory is that, you know, that not only is that not, you know, helpful politically, but even as a form of knowledge production, you know, will miss, you know, very relevant crystallizations of these sort of imminent contradictions that are emerging around concepts of civility, of national belonging. And you can't capture that if you have already decided it's not going to end well and there's nothing left to be elucidated. If I could just piggyback on that, like, that strikes me as that sort of, like, no more possibilities version of critical theory has the same exact structure as what Lillian was describing in this sort of backwards looking fascistic, you know, the fascist reaction always mythologizes its past, right? It says Mm. that we need to return to, or, you know, maybe it's already lost or the game is already lost or it's over. But like there once was a time when there was a possibility for things to be better, be otherwise. 
And it's always myth. That's just a mythic construction, right? It's it's never actually the case that they're pointing to an empirical past. It's an attitudinal sort of foreclosure or a kind of you know a disposition that doesn't have actually this sort of critical orientation that that I think yeah Robin's work is trying to to hold open. Um, it just seems like they have the same shape to me, if that makes sense. Totally. I mean, for, I don't know. It's maybe it's a matter of temperament, or but I think it's also it's it's true that there's a methodological methodological side here. I mean, you know, it's partly just, I guess, the Foucauldian idea that where there's power, there's resistance. And if you look in the right places, which critical theorists haven't always done, you will find the oppressed always have some form of, um, you know, oppositional consciousness, critical understanding of the situation. They have developed, you know, often uh, invisible forms of resistance that you will not find in the archive that don't amount necessarily to the form of political protest or critique that the critical theorist might be um, expecting, but they are still there and they are building, um, they are building blocks for transformative um, forms of politics. Not, not perfect, of course. You know, I don't want to say it's already there in practice. There's not, nothing for the theorists to do. There's, that everything is going, going well. Obviously not. I mean, that's not the, <laughs> that's not the point, but there is this opening. And the second thing, and that's the thing that I think Castoriadis said with regard to uh, 1968 and its radical potential against those who already knew in May 68 that it can't go anywhere, that if the system is too strong, it will immediately integrate it. He said basically that, that there is no more effective form of cooptation to make people afraid that anything they do will be uh, co-opted. So if you're always uh, already worried that whatever you do, it's just going to end up being co-opted by the system, then you have already been co-opted, you know, I mean, that's, and also, you know, many people just cannot afford not, not struggling. I mean, that's why I think Mm -hmm. these, these, these migrant refugee movements are also such same goes for indigenous struggles. Uh, by the way, I mean, you know, many of these people say, well, you know, we can't afford not to struggle. We can't afford to think that, that this has already, you know, because in a way that is the condition of their existence. That is the only chance in a way, in a way they have. Uh, so, you know, again, I think that it's, there's also a responsibility of the critical theorists to take that seriously, to not be too facile in saying, well, you know, sorry, all possibilities have been foreclosed. You just haven't you know, understood that. You haven't already. caught up I mean, yet. People, yeah, I mean, these people know much better what it means to have a foreclosed possibility than, you know, the critical theorist probably does. And yet there's um, the awareness that there's no alternative to, in a way, continue the struggle. If, if I could just ask one last thing about this, to bring it back to your concept of civility, because that's what you use, in, at least in some of the articles that we read, to frame the way that you understand struggle. What your way of reframing the concept of civility, which I really appreciate, is that separate it from the question of peace, right? I think when people hear civility or civil, they think nonviolence usually, right? And a lot of theorists, as you point out, also also do that. And instead of nonviolence, you identify it more with uh, the presence of a civic bond, right? That you engage in civil disobedience with somebody who, or with a group that are adversaries that you don't actually seek to destroy on the friend-enemy like kind of distinction. Um, but there is still some some bond that remains. So I really appreciated this reconstruction of civility because I've had my, you know, my personal hesitations with that concept. Mm. Um, but then the, the example you give of why the far right don't engage in civil disobedience, it can't engage in civil disobedience is because, is because they don't recognize that civic bond with their adversary, right? They, they seek the destruction of that adversary. And so like, that's not a form of practice that's even available to them. But the question that that I wanted to pose, or maybe the challenge that I saw there is, well, how do you understand like opposition to figures like fascist reaction, 
right, in which we're not dealing with an adversary in that case that I think it's possible to establish a civic bond with, or maybe there, it is possible. But either way, that's the problem to me, right, is when you are dealing with certain kinds of adversaries, that it's very difficult to see how any kind of, like maybe instead of a, a national exclusion, or exclusion along the lines of nationality or exclusion along the lines of ethnicity, maybe there's something positive or redeemable about political exclusion. You know what I mean? Like a mm -hmm. civic bond that is premised on exclusion that doesn't seek to actually reach out to or to um, build any kind of connection with the adversary, the opponent, and maybe not seeks their destruction, but certainly seeks to exclude them. And maybe if there is a place in emancipatory, an emancipatory concept of civility that still makes, there's a place for that exclusionary element of maybe a, a friend-enemy distinction deprived of its more fascistic elements, i.e. not based on language, race, uh -huh. and land, but based on a political decision of what we will and will not tolerate, right? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, I think there are two things uh, here. One is, I think, there's a great difference, both politically and conceptually or theoretically speaking, between the, the kind of, let's say, first-order attempt to exclude that I think you know Nazis and the far right uh, embody and the essentially self-defensive exclusion mm. of mm. Nazis and the far right I, I like that, that the, the rest of us then has to resort to because... Mm -hmm because of the first thing that they did <laughs> in a way, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so I think, so while I think the first is not compatible with uh, civility, you know, the kind of Nazi attempt to exclude or destroy, the second one, uh, which is essentially a kind of self-defensive uh, one, as you say, it doesn't have to resort to these fantasies or pre-political ground for that exclusion. It's basically just a form of self-defense against someone that, you know, who attacks you. So, so I think that's a categorical difference and politically very important to mm -hmm. um, to highlight uh, as well. You know, that's why all these equations between anti-fascist violence and Nazi violence just don't go anywhere. I mean, that's just an ideological mm -hmm. trick to delegitimate, you know, legitimate forms of resistance against Nazis. Um, so these are not the same. <laughs> the second thing I want to say is that while I do think that civil resistance and civil disobedience plays an extremely important role, I don't think it exhausts the realm of legitimate resistance and, you know, under certain conditions, you know, anti-colonial struggles, fighting against Nazism, mm -hmm. you know, who cares about civility? I mean, you know, you just have to, you just have <laughs> to end that, that oppression or you have to end that political project. That's great. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't want to say that, you know, in order for, for it to be somehow legitimate or uh, even come up as an option, it has to be civil. I think under certain conditions, um, you know, within most of the political struggles that we are fighting, civility is something that can be radical and uh, at the same time impose a certain, you know, have, have this kind of form of self-restraint that I think can be radical as well. It doesn't have to be moderate. It doesn't have to be in the name of, you know, the kind of normalizing uh, sense of civility that is hegemonic. But there are certainly many conditions under which uh, I think, you know, this self-restraint would be misplaced both uh, strategically and, um, you know, normatively it couldn't be mm -hmm. uh, required. Yeah, I really like that answer. All right. I think that does it for us today. Um, new episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we are really grateful for your support. We're shouting out our patrons 20 at a time until we're caught up, starting with our earliest supporters. So today, we would like to thank Rory Kent, Kelly Kennedy, Rebar Niemi, Zoid Noid, Juniper Caldwell, Jacob Schenker, Dustin Allen, Eugenia, Zach, Matthew Laird, Mike 
Thayer, James, Surya Mohammed, Christopher Lewis, Louis Kirvan, Constantine Genin, Catherine Philbert, Peter Hilson, Kismet Hardy, Clayton Eggleston. Thank you all so much. We really appreciate your support. And finally, a special thank you to Robin for joining us today. We really enjoyed this discussion. Find more of Robin's writing um, and philosophizing at academia.edu, where he's posted most of his published articles, including the ones that we will post um, in our show notes. And again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and we will talk to you all next time. Thanks a lot, Robin. Thank you, Thank you so much. It was great. Wonderful. Thank Thanks you. so much.